Materialism, consumerism, health and fitness, dreams, prosperity, passions, earthly treasures are all fine things, but if they're not scrutinized, they will disrupt our walk with Christ. We live in a unique time in so many ways. The disposability of doing what we want is a wonderful thing, but the voices are very loud, the streams are very strong, the tides and currents are hard to stand against, and temptations surround us. To stand as a man or woman who loves Christ and wants to grow as a believer is interesting in a culture that does not provide any encouragement outside of the body of Christ. It doesn't mean we live in a box. The monastics proved that you can't go live in a box and somehow make it better. Flee temptation, flee the world, flee the attachments that distract us and go up and live in a monastery and have a few books and sing uh, chants and have routines and discipline. It sounds romantic to some of us, and yet it didn't work. I have friends that I would call separatistic and they'll take a few verses in the passage of James and they'll uh, isolate themselves from the world. We are to be in the world, not of the world. We know that, but that's a knife edge of how you measure it. When are you in the world? When you're of the world, it's hard to measure by some standard. But when I look at those groups that separate themselves from the world, um, I don't know that they're growing, reaching people for Christ being a, a great testimony and witness for the gospel. Maybe they are. I don't mean to be unkind. But those things don't work. They're a way for us to kind of shrink wrap what we want to do, but it may or may not help us in the long run. Um, perhaps the examples in Hebrews of that phrase, I love the phrase, men of whom the world was not worthy, strikes a chord for you as it does for me. Um, Years ago, I was a small church in Texas, and I was discouraged, and things weren't going the way I hoped they were going. Was it right or wrong? A lot of it was youth. A lot of it was immaturity and impatience on my part. But um, it seemed uh, going to church and getting to the cafeteria early was the objective. And um, I was naive enough to think we're going to teach the Bible, study the Bible, become disciples, and grow in our faith. And some of that happened, I suspect. But I was reading through the Psalter, and Psalm 12, 1 and 2 boxed my ears. And the psalmist says, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be. The faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips, and with a double heart they speak. And that cemented its way into my thought process. Um, we have a dearth of godly examples today. I've lost my mentors. And if you're my age or older, you are a mentor, like it or not. Uh, when you get to that magic age, you've buried your elders. You are now there in their shoes, like it or not. But it seems so few are growing. So few share the gospel. So few are disciplined to get in the word every day and read and pray and study a little bit. So few are willing to do something for others. And, um, and on the other side, Christians who know better live in fear. Fear of COVID, fear of masks, fear of government, fear of mandates, fear of fill in the blank. When we should be the most confident people on the planet. Um, 
I had lunch with a Christian counselor recently, and I do that from time to time. Uh, we have people that need counseling, and you don't want to come to me. I'm the Bob Newhart counselor. If you don't know that, look it up sometime. Um, you know, depressed, don't be. Uh, that's, you know, I'm not very much help. I'm not wired that way. People are, though. And it's, it's hard to find uh, men and women you can trust that it doesn't become this long, you know, th- three-year thing, or they don't diagnose too quickly or haphazardly or don't know what they're doing and all points in between. It's kind of like trying to find a church. Lots of flavors out there. But I want to find one that's rooted in Scripture. It's, you know, can teach people from God's Word how to address some of their concerns. Anyway, we had lunch with a delightful guy about my age, a little younger. And uh, so he's been around the block. And we talked about how you treat and how does the Bible. I asked him, how do you integrate theology and psychology? In a fascinating conversation, I just peppered him with questions. And I said, what's, what's changed? First, I asked him, when you look at your clients, what are the presenting problems? It's depression, anxiety, marital issues, so forth. I said, what's changed? What's new? And at first he said, nothing. It's all the same. And I get that, human nature being what it is. People are hurt and people hurt. And so that causes emotional trauma. And he talked a lot about narcissism today and how that is a a real challenge in his client list. And I I pushed him a little bit and I said, well, there's got to be some changes. And it wasn't like combative, just a little, it was a great conversation. And I said, well, look at the internet and pornography and young Christians who aren't married, who are living sexually involved uh, at the same percentages that the world does and the gender dysphoria and LGBTQA influence and voices. There's got to be other things going. And he said, yeah, you're right. There's different issues, but he said it's the same root problem. And um, then he said, you know, the church has really failed to not teach well. And so in some, this became a cheery Michael Easley lunch. (laughs) I found a friend and I found a comrade who gets it. This passage kind of stripped me of how do I talk about it? And the more I looked at it and the more I studied it, uh, to, to address the problems I've just sort of ambled through, I think what this passage has taught me this week, and maybe it'll encourage you today and going forward, is we need a clearer picture of who Jesus is. Because attacking diagnosing something, prescribing a treatment is good. It's fine. It's important. It's helpful. Don't hear me minimize that. But if I don't know who this Christ is, then it's all confusing. It's for not. It can be frustrating. Why am I doing these things to be a better person? And so this passage will put that out right at the front, right at the end, very clearly. Uh, You need to know who this Jesus is. You might remember the story in John chapter 12, verse 20, it's, it's an oh-by-the-way story in John's gospel. And um, they're going up for the festival for Passover with Jesus. And there's this phrase that says, some Greeks came and they met Philip. Well, when you read the gospel of John, there's no oh-by-the-way in the Bible. But it just, it's an interesting little pericope, a story in a set. That, why is it there? And they go to Philip. And the king's English says, sir... We would see Jesus. I love that. Sir, we would see Jesus. Now, these are Greeks, John tells us, which means 
they were either Greek-speaking Jews or perhaps they were Greeks who were converted to Judaism. We'll never know. The point is, this subset of the culture who is going up to worship, so obviously they're Jews, they wouldn't have gone to temple for the feast of Passover if they weren't Jews. And they hunt down the disciples and find Philip and say, Sir, we was Philip and the disciples, to their defense, they didn't know what was about to come down. They didn't know in a matter of days Christ would be, mis- would be arrested, mistreated, mistrialed, beaten, incarcerated, flogged, crucified, and died. They didn't know that. But just days before, this little clutch of Greek-speaking Jews, sir, we want to see the real thing. One of my friends, Dave Gibson, who's preached here on occasion for years on the margins of his sermon notes, had in large font, sir, we would see Jesus. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 8 left us with this obedient suffering to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the hymn then changes in verses 9 to 11. It flips almost to 180. Paul doesn't leave us hanging there. He moves forward what happens after the death, burial of, and burial of Christ. Ralph Martin writes him, attention has up to this point been focused on the self-humbling and obedience of the Son of God. Now, it is God who, as it were, takes the initiative. And the name of Jesus Christ is introduced. It is absent from verses 6 to 8. I missed this entirely. Verses 5 through 8 don't mention these names, this word. So the hymn is about the obedience and the suffering and the death, even death on a cross. And now the hymn flips the hymn goes from kenosis, emptying, to exaltation, from a bondservant to a sovereign God, from the God-man who's earthbound to the eternal God-man on the throne. Let's look at it, verse 9 and 11 in Philippians chapter 2. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in these few verses we have, first of all, the supremacy of this name, the supreme name of this man that God highly exalts. Christ perfectly obeyed the Father. We have two main verbs Paul uses that he exalted him and he bestowed on him. Let's talk about them very briefly. Uh, Exalted literally means to raise him out of the grave. The verse prior said he obeyed him to the point of death, death on a cross. And now the burial confirms the death. And Paul says, but he exalted him. But it's not just a physical resurrection in mind. I believe firmly Paul is also giving us a spiritual resurrection in mind. Yes, he was physically exalted, but he's also let's say, symbolically or spiritually exalted, and he's going to explain that further in the passage. He said he bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Now, the word bestowed is not a word we use. I doubt in the last year you said, honey, I bestowed this on you. <laughs> Even kings and Jane people don't use that word. I mean, just it's, it's an also-ran word. It's the, the language encumbers up. It means to give graciously. I'm giving this to you graciously. I've exalted you the name above all names, and I'm bestowing upon you this name above every name. These two things. There's no higher rank. 
I'm graciously giving you something you don't deserve or couldn't earn. In our sake, Christ, of course, is the God-man. No one higher. Um, if you think of world history, and I've, I've become somewhat of a, let's say, not a history buff, but I'm trying to relearn all I've forgotten in my earlier years. I'm reading uh, textbooks on history right now with a group of men on Monday. We have a, a little WebEx thing. We meet for lunch for an hour and a half or so, hour, hour and a half. And we read into this. It's, it's a textbook. And it's remarkable. I know I read this stuff, but I couldn't prove it. All the things I have forgotten about history and where we are today. If we were to take all the brilliant men of history, and let's just talk about the world, not even Christian history. Let's take the Einsteins and the Mozarts and the Da Vinci's and you know, whoever, whoever you want. Come into modern medicine and take the world-famous neurosurgeons and uh, medical uh, pioneers in different areas. Uh, think about science and advancements of technology. Take all the men and women from all history and put them into one human being, they would pale. But the problem is we don't see Jesus clearly. He's that guy. He's our friend. We sing songs about him. The name Jesus is a little bit odd to even say for some people. It doesn't roll off the tongue. And Paul is telling us that this supreme name, God exalted him and bestowed on him, graciously gave him a name that is above all names. The Father's response is to make him ruler of all. Ralph Martin again writes, he who stooped so low is now lifted up to the glorious rank of equality with God. Remember he said earlier, he did not seek equality with God, a thing to be grasped. And now Martin is saying that God, he who stooped so low, is now lifted up. And God gave this to him. Namely, the enjoyment of that dignity, which was ever his by right, but he never clutched at as his personal possession. You know the term uh, trust, trust baby or estate baby? Um, and some of you might be. I wish I had been an estate baby. Nothing against it. But there is a symptom with trust people. If you were get a, given an enormous amount of wealth and you never had to work or prove yourself or do something, there's a diminishment of the person's identity and what they do. And they have to work very hard to get out of that and not just live. Cindy's, some of you know, a realtor, and she's had uh, estate baby clients. And they'll sell a house in California, they'll move to Charleston, they'll move to Nashville, and, and that's great. That's what they do. But um, there's no real ownership. There's no real, you know, work for it. Um, Jesus Christ had all that by right and reputation, but he never clutched at it. He's the God-man, eternally existing. He had the right to it all. He never took it. The honor is now conferred by the bestowal of the Father. It's not that though he didn't have it, it's just that he reserved it. Maybe that's part of the kenosis. He set it aside and said, I'll only do what my Father wants me to do. I'll only do my Father's good pleasure. He continues, the human name Jesus is important, not least because it declares that lordly power is seen as committed to the hands of the historical person of Jesus of Nazareth. He's not some cosmic cipher or despotic ruler, but a figure to whom Christians could give a face and a name. We've got to see him. 
What's he like? For, for you to have a clearer picture, for me to have a clearer picture of Jesus, it would help if I could see him. Sir, we would see Jesus. Well, let's think about this name. Three times Paul uses the word name in this short text. The bestowed or graciously given by the Father. It's a name above every other name, and the name commands worship. Now, bear in mind, naming something was to have dominion over it. Naming something was to identify it. If you look at a disease that's called Alzheimer's or Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS, there is an association with the men or women or individuals who discovered this disease and classified it and said, we're going to call this Alzheimer's. It's been from their time immemorial. When Adam was put in the garden, he was given the command to name the animals. And in that command wasn't just, well, I'm keeping them busy naming them. He's given dominion over them. Before Adam fell, his role was dominion over creation. And so he names all the animals. He classifies. The one who names it has power over it. The one who names it has the authority to give it the name. When you have a child, you don't wait till they're 13 to say, what would you like to be called? You give them a name. I met someone at the first service, and I loved his son's name. And I said, is that a family name? He goes, no, I just liked it. And he goes, I just told my wife, this is what we're going to name him. I'm like, okay. But you got to love it. He bequeathed a name on a child, and that child will always be that name. There was a story that someone sent to me in an uh, inbox the other day. I get stuff from all over. In 2005, there was a South African man named Marius Ells, and he adopted a baby hippo, rescuing it out of the river. Six years later, after the bonding between the two, the hippo dragged him into the river and ate him. It's an animal. After the fall, you no longer have dominion. After the fall, they're afraid of you and you of them, unless you domesticate them. Well, in this setting, Adam, given charge over the animals, God the Father says, no, this is the name above all names. This is the supreme name. There's no equivalency here. This name is above every other name. And God grants that name that, granted, always existed, but now it's forever announced. In verse 11, it's implied in the text, the name, but he writes, Jesus Christ is Lord. The word Lord is the word kurios, roughly transliterated, K-U-R-I-O-S, kurios or kuria. If you were raised Catholic or in Latin mass, you heard kurie, and they would sing chants to kurie, to the Lord. That's the Greek word for Lord. Now, a little history on this word. The Septuagint is, uh, if you read in a commentary, it'll have the letter LXX. That's an abbreviation for the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Old Testament written primarily in Hebrew, a little Aramaic, mostly in Hebrew. The lingua franca of the day was Greek. So let's translate it so people can read it in the common language of the day, being Greek. So when the Septuagint translators, by the way, there's not one Septuagint. It's a body of, think about all the English Bibles we have. There's a lot of contributions to it. It's not just one. But the way they translated a particular word in the Old Testament was to use this word, courier, for Lord. Now, in the front of your Bible, if you have a New American Standard, there's a really important thing called a preface. And you should read it sometime. It's not long. It's only a couple pages. 
But what they say in this one paragraph about the names of God is worth the price of that Bible. Because there are several names for God in the Old Testament. There's God, there's Lord, there's Lord Jesus, the Lord God. Um, and we have Hebrew words like Elohim, translated God, and we have some that we don't say out loud. We have one that the King's English translated Jehovah. You've all heard that word. And that was to soften the word Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. No one knows how to pronounce it. We're not exactly sure. Um, the characters in the Greek and uh, Hebrew stand alone. It's called the Tetragrammaton. It's a big subject, and the Orthodox Jews do not like you to say the word Yahweh. They get very upset. And they have a system called Katib Kare. What is written, what is read. So you can read it, but you can't say it. So when they come to Yahweh, or Yahweh, or however you pronounce it in Hebrew, they, they read it, but they say Adonai. Or in your Bible, if you have a numerical standard, it's capital L. O-R-D is in small capital letters. That's how it differentiates. Now, this is a little technical, and most of you are going, I could care less about this. I want you to care about this. The names of God are pretty important. This book is about God. And why the authors use one name at one time and another is sometimes worth paying a little attention to. So all that to say, when Paul writes, Jesus Christ is Lord, he equates him with Yahweh. Remember when Jesus is confronted by the scribes and Pharisees, and he gives this answer they do not like, before Abraham was, I am. And they pick up stones to kill him. Jesus made himself out to be God. When Moses encounters the burning bush, one of the interchanges is, you know, who, who should I say sent me to Pharaoh? He says, say, we'd say I am, but that's the word Yahweh. Now, think about it pragmatically. You're not going to want to say I am because it sounds like you're talking about yourself. And perhaps that's one of the reasons pious Jews don't like to say the word. When I travel to Israel, I have guides. that You have to have an Israeli guide uh, along with your tour as part of the Department of uh, Tourism, Ministry of Tourism. And they're, they're wonderful people, but they really don't like me to say Yahweh. They go, oh, the, the Jews are very upset. And I go, Yahweh. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I'm paying their salary. I figure I can say Yahweh, but it's uh, it, not to be indelicate, but some just really don't like you to say that word. Your New Testament, Paul says here in verse 11, the name is now Lord. He's not a little part of God. He's not a chip off the father block. He's not a third of God in the Trinitarian misunderstanding. He is God. And Paul says, after Jesus Christ submitted himself obedient to the point of death, death on a cross, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name. Lord, you need to see Jesus clearly. I need to see Jesus clearly. Point being, Giving this name to Jesus was not as though it did not exist. But going forward, the believer is reading, God declares this God-man, fully God, fully man, forever and all eternity. If you haven't memorized Galatians 4.4, I encourage you to memorize it. Christmas is coming up. It's a great Christmas verse. People don't think about Galatians being a book about Christmas. Galatians 4.4 is a really important verse in the scheme of understanding incarnation. If Jesus always existed and comes to be a baby born of Mary. That's a head-scratcher. He's always been around. How did he show up all of a sudden? Galatians 4.4, 4. he was born at the proper time. Under the law, he came. 
He interrupted time. I've talked about that many times. There's a timeline for our benefit. Now, this Jesus is going to be misunderstood, mistreated, confused. He was always Lord of creation. I believe Colossians 1 is an open and shut case. Christ was the one at creation that created the things that we see and don't see. But it's hard to press that upon people. Because like those Greeks, sir, we want to see Jesus. I need a clear picture of who this man is, who this God-man is. Well, God makes the announcement, Christ is Lord, period. Now the result of this name is twofold. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. This is taken from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me, what is he saying? To me, God says, to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance in this translation. Romans 14, 11, Paul will use it again. Paul appeals to the inspired words that the Holy Spirit gave Isaiah 700 plus years before this happens. He has Isaiah write this down. 700 years and change later. It's fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Paul twice brings it up in his knowledge bank when he's writing to the Philippians and writing to the, to the Romans. This is who he is. Just as Isaiah prophesied, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Um, I find it both interesting and funny and helpful that God swears by his own name. Because no one else can vouch for God but himself. Which to me gives remarkable insight into the veracity of the Trinitarian Godhead. He can bow to himself. The extent of the name is three prepositions in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Each of these comprising both people and angelic beings. Again, Martin writes, intelligent beings in heaven, earth, and, under, and the underworld who will bend the knee in submission and whose lips will make the confession of the earliest Christian creed, Jesus Christ is Lord. I find that chilling. You didn't believe him in your lifetime? You're going to say it and you're going to kneel down. How many science fiction or gladiator or semi-historical movies have you watched where the the, the, the spoils of war have to bow before the king or the monarch or the captain or the queen because they're now the conquered possession of the, of the war. That's just a little splinter of what it's going to be like in eternity. Every, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. I don't know if you've been in these large auditoriums where singing is great in a, a large auditorium. It's wonderful. But there's something about spirituality Speaking the same thing together. You ever been in one of these rooms, like an amphitheater or a concert, and instead of singing it, you stop and you say it together? It's chilling. It's chilling. And in my sanctified imagination, I see all humanity saying, He is Jesus Christ the Lord. On their knees, face on the ground, whether they want to believe it or they're made to believe it. And that's what Paul is telling us. In this passage, the film version of The Lord of the Rings takes a lot of liberty from what Tolkien actually wrote 
And um, those of you who read the Cimmerillion and maybe you've read the Lord of the Rings trilogy again and again and again and again, I talked with Jay between services and he was correcting me on some things. <laughs> all in good form, all in good form. Uh, I'm not a Cimmerillion uh, student, but there's a scene in the movie that is chilling. And it's when uh, Gandalf and Sauron are having this big argument fight. And Gandalf says to Sauron, there is only one Lord of the Ring, only one who can bend it to his will, and he does not share power. It's a great illustration. And maybe Sauron's the Satan character there, I don't know precisely. Do you see why you need a clear picture of who this Jesus Christ is? Do you see why understanding this from what the scripture tells us is so important in how you live the Christian life? You cannot live the Christian life if you don't have a clear definition of who this Jesus is. You're living your own monastic life, your only made-up life. This is what a good Christian does or doesn't do. This is what other people I see do or don't do. I don't like what they don't do. I want to do that. I like what they do. I'm going to do that. And we fabricate our own. We make God in our image rather than worshiping him in his image of the true God man. Revelation 3.21, he who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Remarkable. Only one guy can do that. Only one God-man can do that. Christ serves as a kind of a paradigm for all Christians in this regard. Um, Gordon Fee writes, there is no genuine Christian life that is not at the same time a life by the power of the Holy Spirit being regularly transformed in the likeness of Christ. A gospel of grace that omits obedience is not Pauline in any sense. Obedience, after all, is precisely the point. What's he saying there? If you trusted Christ, you walked the aisle, you prayed the prayer, you put your faith in Christ to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. He lived, he died, he was buried, he came back from the dead. You embrace him, you trust him, you put your belief in him. What he has done for you, you can never do for yourself. When you made that transaction belief, when you trusted Christ, the Holy Spirit moved in and became your permanent, lifelong roommate. He's never going out. You can't get rid of him. His job is to help us be transformed and more like the person of Christ. And the question I ask myself, and you've been around me, the question I ask you all the time, are you any more like Jesus than the day you were saved? Are you any more like Christ than a year ago? And a lot of times... In my devotion life, I Michael, you're not anywhere any more like Christ than you were a long In fact, you're in the ditch right now, Michael. And that's not a guilt and shame experience. That's I need to obey. I need to submit to God's word and God's spirit and be around God's people to help me go in the right direction. You can't do this alone. Your picture of Jesus Christ, not to sound unkind, is probably not very good. Mine isn't at times. It's really messy. It's bad. I have to align it with Scripture. What does the Word tell me about this Jesus? Sir, we would see Jesus. Don't concoct him in your own image. I could never, how many people, how many times have you heard, I could never worship a God that, fill in the blank. 
I want to pull my hair out. I'm not a very nice person when people say things like that. I want to give them a dope slap. You're kind of stupid, aren't you? Well, they're just lost and broken and drinking their own nonsense. That's what they are. Well, two lessons. Number one, exaltation follows humiliation. Contrary to ego, to entitlement, to the way the world works for Western Christians, self-achievement, um, the Scripture is clear. <laughs> it's the humble that God raises. It's the lowly He rewards. It's the meek who inherit the earth. It's not self-deprecation and all oh, poor pitiful me. It's a humility to know I am worth nothing apart from God's grace. I'm not a trust baby. In the exaltation of Christ experience when he went to heaven, writes Walford, was not the only was not only a resumption of glory, but added glory of the triumph over sin, over suffering and death. I love this. Christ didn't go back to heaven, sort of I'm back to the way it was, always was. Listen to how he writes it again. But the added glory of triumph over sin, suffering, and death, and the fulfillment of God that is in his death that would reconcile the world to himself. Sir, I want to see that Jesus. I want to see the Jesus that forgives all my sins, that knows everything about me and still loves me, that knows when I choose volitionally, willfully, again and again to sin, that knows I'm a crummy husband, I'm a crummy father, I'm a crummy mom, I'm a crummy wife, I'm a person that takes liberties at work that I shouldn't take. I really don't care about anybody but myself, truth be told. My neighbors annoy the heck out of me. I really don't want to do this, Jesus. I want to watch Netflix and surf on the internet and look on Instagram all day long or whatever wind you watch. I'm, you know me. I'm not a guilt and shame guy. I'm right there with you. Maybe it begins with a clearer picture of who our Lord is. Then I align myself. Okay. He's not, oh, by the way, he's the Lord. Matthew 3, 23, 12, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. So different than our world's view, isn't it? It's all about me, my. I'm a, don't, don't hear me be unkind. I'm an influencer. I want to cough up a hairball. You're an influencer? I'm a thought leader. Let me cough up a hairball. You think. Good for you. That's good to think. I'm all for that. Goodness gracious, we're a funny people. Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant. He's talking about the son of God. My servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Sound familiar? Finally, to God be the glory. This is the doxa. This is the weight. So the word doxa, doxology, is, uh, I can't even give you a, thumbnail, a piece of a thumbnail about the word glory, but I'm going to try. So uh, any of you seen the doxology in your church when you were growing up? Uh, well, I went to a church in, in college, lovely church, we had a Sunday morning and a Sunday school, Sunday morning and a Sunday night where just a handful of people, mostly little old ladies that sang really off key. And I was a college kid, but I loved this church and I was learning so much and I was growing like crazy. And uh, it was a very important time in my life. 
And I would go to that little Sunday night service. One of the few college kids there, college kids had no time for church on Sunday night. They were doing homework for Monday. And uh, these people would sing their hearts out. And we sang the doxology every Sunday night, not in the big church, but on Sunday night. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise Was the glory, where's glory in there? It ain't even in there. As a college kid, I'm going, wait, this is a doxology. I look it up in the dictionary in those days. Doxology, glory. Wait, it's a glorification song, but it doesn't even mention the word glory. So I'm scratching my head. This began a long journey for me. What, glory is another Bible word. Well, um, in Hebrew, it's the word kavod, kavod, and uh, the temple complex was built by a guy named Horam or Hiram, depending on your Hebrew. He was uh, brought in from out of town, so to speak, because the Jews didn't know how to do what he knew how to do. And uh, he was a brilliant craftsman, engineer, artisan, all above. And they, he made these two pillars that held up the front piece of the temple complex. They were massive works of art. And he named them. One was named Boaz, and the other was named... Did you, did you look it up? Yeah. Cheater. <laughs> Does anybody know what the other one was? I'm not going to tell you. Though these two names, now think about it. You make something that's so wonderful, and you give it a name. I have friends that name their cars. I have a doctor friend, and he goes, yeah, we get a car, and the family names the car. Good for you. God bless you. That's a car. Yeah. So anyway, um, Horam names these, temp- these uh, pillars. And if you look at the whole storyline, the weight of God is so heavy compared to man, we need something that will sustain the weight, metaphorically speaking. So he's appealing to these two incredible characters in God's storyline, Boaz and (laughs) because he wants the Jew to understand this is what sustains the glory of God. Now, that's a super oversimplification with some areas of don't run too far in the weeds. But Paul is saying here, if you understand the name Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God, the weight of God's presence, power, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence. You see, no one stoops so low and no one stoops so high as Jesus Christ in all of eternity, past and nothing in eternity future. This Jesus... We need to see who he really is. He knows everything about you. He's God. He's more powerful than any political affiliation. He's more powerful than a country that's built on an experiment. He's more powerful than all the arsenals of enemies against this beloved country. He's aware of everything. And he accomplished it by obeying his father to the point of death, death on a cross. And because of that, God the Father highly exalts him and gives him a name. Where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. You and I need a very clear picture of who this Jesus is. And until and unless we grow in that, it's real simple. Our life's all about me and how I define it on my terms. And that's pretty dangerous. To God be the glory, great things he has done.